You are listening to the Special Needs Mom Podcast. This is Kara, your host, and I am so glad you're here. Before we get into this episode, I want you to know that Pathway to Peace, which is a group coaching program, is currently available to join. This program is built on three main pillars. First, coaching. It's the real powerhouse. It's what I do. It's what I love. Second, community. And if you've been around for a little bit more than a minute, you know how I feel about community and the power that it has to heal and change your life. And lastly, I have a library of content filled with resources, with modules, with lessons. We go way deeper than I can go in on the podcast. And these are available to you in a way that you can consume them in your busy life. This program would be a good fit for you if you've stabilized past the point of initial diagnosis and find yourself spending a little bit more than you'd like to in overwhelm. And you can't imagine how, given all the things in your life, you can have any sort of peace ever again. Through the program, you will gain the gift of acceptance. You will do the work to recover your spark. You'll leave the program with the tools and the confidence that you have what you need to have joy and peace part of your life once again. So it's time to change it up. I know you've been saying yes to everybody, especially serving with all your heart and everything you have to your child. Now it's time to say yes to you. Find the link in the show notes to get more information and for next steps. Hi, I'm Kara, life coach, wife, and mom to four incredible and unique children. It wasn't all that long ago that my son received a diagnosis that had my world come crashing down. I lacked the ability to see past the circumstances, which felt impossible, and the dreams I once had for my life and family felt destroyed. Fast forward past many years of surviving and not at all thriving, And you'll see a mom who trusts that she can handle anything that comes her way and has access to the power and confidence that once felt so lacking. I created the Special Needs Mom podcast to create connection and community with moms who find themselves feeling trapped and with no one who really understands. My intention is to spark the flare of possibility in your own life and rekindle your ability to dream. This isn't a podcast about your special needs child. This is a podcast about you. If you are a mom who feels anxious, alone, or stuck, then you are in the right place. Welcome. Hello and welcome to the Special Needs Mom Podcast. I'm so glad you're here. And what I know is that you all know what it's like to have to pivot. And today's episode was originally scheduled for a little later in the year, but I had to pivot. I was in the shower couple days ago, and I had anticipated recording a solo episode for you that I'm really excited to bring to you. And I was thinking to myself, you've got to let go of this one. You've got to let go of like exactly how you wanted it to be and how you had kind of thought through everything to what is easiest for you right now. And so I'm really proud of myself for doing that. And also it's a win-win because the guest I have today, she's a powerhouse, but more about her later. Um, I'll tell you a little bit behind the scenes of why I had to pivot. And overall, it's good news because I have the privilege of painting my kitchen cabinets, 
Well, really hiring somebody to do that work. But it's like really disrupting my life. (laughs) I, I know that if you have gone through any sort of construction or remodel in your home, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And uh, yeah, just this weekend was full of preparing to have the painters come, way underestimated how long that would take. And so therefore, like I said earlier, I had to let go of it. But you know what? I trust it's all in perfect timing. So let's talk a little bit about this week's episode. It's a juicy one. This conversation is with Amy Nair. She is a friend that I met, a now friend. I met her earlier this year at the We Are Brave Together retreat in San Diego, which I had the fortune of leading. And she is just somebody that is, I was thinking about this, she's a really good listener. And that's a skill I think that is really underappreciated these days. She's also a great talker as you're going to, you're here. And she's really Got a beautiful way of sharing the whole story, not just sharing the pretty afterwards, but sharing the whole journey. And I think those of you that have been here a while know that I'm really all about sharing the whole story, not just about the pretty happy rainbow ending that, you know, some of us make it to at some point. I'm not sure. Okay, so she is a physical therapist. She earned her doctorate of physical therapy from Mount St. Mary's and now currently lives in the LA area with her husband and son. And like I said earlier, what I love about her is that she shares where she's come from, where she is now, and where she still wants to go in terms of her experience as a mom of a child with medical complexities. You know, we talk about tools that have helped her, and I think it's going to be a conversation that you're going to both relate to and feel like, wow, I'm not alone in this, but also I think you're going to leave with some resources. So we're going to talk about those. Anything we mentioned in the episode will, of course, be linked in the show notes. And specifically, what we talk about is this thing we're calling hyper-responsibility. And as you listen to the episode, I'm pretty certain that you're going to relate to this. You're going to relate to it at a high level. Listen up to what has helped Amy and consider leaning a little further in what you're already doing to support yourself and or using Amy as a launch point for trying something to support yourself. Now, before we start the episode, I do want to mention Pathway to Peace. Hopefully you would have heard about it in the introduction before the show got started, but I know we all kind of get used to those introductions and start to ignore them. So I want to make sure that you don't miss the opportunity to join the fall cohort. We're in a new season. And if you're like me, you're ready to exhale, ready to slow down again, to really sink into like, okay, we're in a new season. I can kind of shift from having the summer been all about just getting through with my kids and sustaining all the things that I was committed to and shift a little bit more focus over back on me. And I know that this is something that is really difficult for a lot of us, that it feels like it's either my kids or me. And I'm not willing to give up what my kids need, so I will just have to suffer. And I am here to say, it does not have to be that way. You like that rhyme? So I'm going to teach you how to do this in this program. And it's packed with resources. And yet, as good as the resources are, I think the real magic is the community. It's the community working together, going towards the same goal together. It's like putting what you could do on your own on steroids, because there is such 
power in watching another woman do the same thing that you're attempting to do and push through that resistance the same that you have. It's like we fuel each other, we inspire each other, but in a very tangible way that feels very accessible and not overly lofty. And so I want you to consider that these relationships, these tools and resources, these shifts that you experience in this program will stay with you for the rest of your life. And I would love to have a conversation with you, really understanding what you're looking for, who you are, and if this program is right for you right now. So the way I do that is I have conversations. It's a small, intimate group. The good news is that allows me to support you at a very high level and to be very, very connected to the community. Take a second, click on the link to the show notes, and then you'll find a way to schedule some time with me. So don't delay because we're getting started. You don't want to miss out on the beginning and it's going to be really fun. So my promise to you is that it will be deep, it will be meaningful, but we also have fun along the way. All right, let's get into the episode. Well, hello, Amy, and welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to finally be here. I know. Very fun. Well, let's jump right in. I want to hear it from your own lips. A little bit more about you. Just give me a little sense of, you know, what's your jam? What's my jam? That's a good question. So I'm born and raised Southern California. I went to UCLA. I live in the South Bay, which is near LAX in Los Angeles. I love being outdoors. I love the ocean. My husband and I swim in the ocean. We try to go once a week. I think I love the mountains and the ocean equally. I love greenery. I love going up to the mountains, especially um, to Big Sur. Oh, yes. Oh, it's like, that's the best. I was like, that's the best of both worlds. Anyhow, it is the best of both worlds. All y'all that aren't in California, or for some odd reason, don't know about Big Sur. It is where I think there's a saying for it. What's the saying? Isn't there a saying like basically the ocean like meets the the forest? Yeah. And there's a scary cliffy road that I don't like, but it is so gorgeous. It's (laughs) one of the most gorgeous places yeah. And anyhow, continue on. <laughs> exactly. No, I mean, I just, I think that being from California and I just, I really appreciate everything about the outdoors and it's where I ground myself and where I just feel my most calm. See, after UCLA, some time passed, I went to Mount St. Mary's College, which is now Mount St. Mary's University for physical therapy school. And I always knew I wanted to do neurophysical therapy. Did you so, always know um, you wanted to be a physical therapist? No, I thought I wanted to be a physician, something neuro. I always loved the brain. Then I realized when I was in college that I wanted a career that would be a little bit more flexible mm-hmm. and that I could start sooner. I didn't really feel like doing the whole residency fellowship route. And it was my husband who was at the time my boyfriend. And he said, you know, I think physical therapists have a really high satisfaction in their careers. You should look into that. And I really hadn't thought about it, but then I got a job as a PT aide and I started volunteering Mm -hmm. and it was definitely the right move. I've worked with people who have had strokes. I've worked with brain injury. I've worked on spinal cord injury, mostly right after the injury, like in the hospital. And I've worked in the hospital also doing like post-surgical orthopedics, um, like hip replacements and post-heart surgeries things like that. Now I'm doing neuro PT in an outpatient clinic, working with people who have uh, movement disorders like Parkinson's, Mm -hmm. and then also working with people who have rare and or complex nervous system disorders. 
And that is my jam. I love it. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. And I mean, I'm just going to say it. You're like a pretty big deal in the PT world. She's very, (laughs) very well recognized as incredible. So um, now let's kind of look at uh, another part of you, uh, you as a mom. And tell us a little bit about your family, your child, I guess. And then tell us a little bit about your becoming as you stepped in from being a mom into also being a special needs mom. Right. So my husband and I had, um, my my husband's John. We had David is my son and we had him in 2015. So he just turned eight. My husband comes from a very big family. He's the oldest of nine. And I come from a small family. I'm the youngest of two. And Mm -hmm. we decided we were going to probably have four was like Mm -hmm. our compromise, right? Mm -hmm. I like that. Um, Me in the middle. (laughs) (laughs) Me in the middle. And when my son was born, you know, it was uncomplicated birth. He was very Mm -hmm. planned for, very loved. And honestly, day one in the hospital, I had a feeling that something was wrong. And Mm -hmm. so my special needs mothering journey started day one uh, with people basically telling me you're an over anxious mom. Mm. And that was the start of my journey that had kind of continued even to this day, being dismissed and having your concerns not be heard started day one for me. You know, I'm a healthcare professional, but I don't work with babies. And this was my first baby. But even then I thought, well, that doesn't seem right. You know, this isn't typical. And I would ask questions in a more inquisitive way. I didn't think I sounded overly anxious and people would just dismiss. Oh, it's fine. It's fine. Mm -hmm. So essentially, you know, we had a a few weeks where things seemed relatively okay and normal, but he did have a lot of reflux. And I guess that's something that occurs in some babies, but his got worse and worse. Pretty much from the time he was six weeks old, he was on medicine for it. And then by the time he was three months old, he stopped gaining weight. And when he was five months old, it was our first time seeing specialists. And then it just kind of went from there. He has several rare conditions that tend to come together. One of them is called mast cell activation syndrome, MCAS. Uh, That is an immunological condition in which the body has allergic reactions or allergic type reactions to anything, everything. When he was a baby, primarily it was food, my breast milk, anything I ate that was through my breast milk. Mm-hmm. Um, he also has a condition called hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome or HEDS, connective tissue in the body that is very hypermobile, very, um, very, very flexible, but it also in it's not just the joints. It also affects the internal organs. Hmm. Um, Any place that there's connective tissue, his is very affected and doesn't hold organs together as well. And so that affects him the most in his GI tract. Hmm. He has a feeding tube as a result of those two conditions. He hasn't been formally diagnosed with dysautonomia, although it's likely that he has it. They just don't tend to diagnose children with it. But basically what that means is that a part of its nervous system doesn't act appropriately at times. So it can make his heart rate go up very high. When he was a baby, he would run around, not a baby, like a toddler. He'd be running around and spike a fever Mm -hmm. just by running. And 
I think that his dysautonomia is also related to his digestive issues as well. So it's all kind of tied together. Now we're looking at some possible other neurologic conditions that might be underlying some other things we're seeing, but just the new part of the journey um, Mm -hmm. to better understand him and to better support his needs. He is also autistic and has selective mutism in which he speaks directly to four people. He has anxiety, and I think his anxiety is primarily due to his medical trauma and the lack of control of his body. So that's like a list of his conditions. But as a person, he is absolutely like the most brilliant person I've ever met. He has a memory that puts mind to shame. He loves games. He loves mazes. He loves to draw his own mazes, and he calls himself an amazing maze maker. (laughs) Um, I love that. He he really is. He's got to write a book and work with that title or, you know, make a maze book. An amazing book. Get it? He has. Oh, yeah. Our house is filled with books. Yeah. Oh, he loves to draw. His nickname is Doodles because he actually, Mm -hmm. he loves to doodle. His classmates love his doodles and he's super, super bright and inquisitive. Like when kids go through their why stage, like why, why, why? He genuinely wants to know why and never, ever left the why stage. He wants to know why Mm -hmm. to everything. And he is absolutely a joy to have around. He is so fun. He loves music. He loves to listen to his playlist on Spotify. And he loves to travel, airplanes, airports. That's his favorite. Wow. He does sound like a dream. And I know it's not always easy. There's obviously, you know. yeah. (laughs) Um, a lot of things. Yeah. But I love that you acknowledge that who he is is separate from a list of his diagnoses. Your wording really struck me and I like the way that you differentiated that. So now let's turn to you. He's, you know, gone through all the years. Now he's eight. You had that hunch in the beginning and, you know, you went through the whole series that many of his have gone through where you're learning more, you're dealing with like the unknown, there's a lot of fear involved. When you look back over like, I guess the entirety of his life, what are the parts that stick out to you the most as you look back from where you're at now? Well, I think the early stages, like when he was a baby, I don't think anything could have ever prepared me for that level of fear and the unknown and not having any guidance. We were luckily hooked up with one of the most phenomenal GI doctors mm-hmm. who we're still with to this day. She has saved his life on multiple occasions and is amazing. And even she didn't really quite know what was going on initially. And he wasn't responding well, even to the medicines at first. And he was just very sick on my breast milk. Mm -hmm. So the early days of just desperately trying to eliminate foods from my diet so that he could survive, Mm -hmm. he would start gaining weight. He would eventually turn a corner and that didn't happen. And then trying to get him on a formula, any hypoallergenic formula that he could tolerate. And that didn't happen. And so it was just, he couldn't tolerate pretty much anything we were trying to do. And it was just a very scary time. And Mm -hmm. his medicines were compounded. They still are pure powder and water. And they, at the time, were not covered by insurance. So we couldn't afford them, Mm -hmm. but we Mm -hmm. had to figure out a way to do that. And I think Mm -hmm. that when we finally got him onto, we, we ended up working with a dietitian who helped us 
create a modular formula with a hypoallergenic amino acid powder, water, sugar, and um, olive oil. Mm-hmm. And we blend, well, we tried our best to blend it. It turns out olive oil and water don't blend very well. <laughs> Who knew? But that was his formula from the time he was mm-hmm. about nine months old until he was a little over two years old. And he did gain weight on it. And so we were able to get him off my breast milk. And I think beyond the fear, there was a lot of shame, a Mm. lot of feeling like I should be able to feed my kid and responsibility, feeling overly responsible for that when it wasn't my fault. So that was a very key time in our journey. I also think back to when he was two and a half to three. That was a challenging time in a lot of different ways. So he had just received his feeding tube. He had surgery when he was a little over two. And we were able to transition him to a different formula that wasn't made from olive oil and sugar and water. And he tolerated the switch. But around that time, he started having behaviors that were really concerning. He didn't want me around at all. And... Mm. It was more than just your what you read about with like parent preference. Mm-hmm. If I walked in his room in the morning, he would scream bloody murder until I left. Um, mm-hmm. Wouldn't get ready with me in the morning. If he was playing a game with his dad and I walked in the room, like he didn't want me in the room. Then we were seeing some other behaviors. Like if something didn't work out the way he wanted it to work out, he would kind of like punish himself and like put a toy away. Instead of like working mm-hmm. through it, he was he would like, especially when he was around three, like I can't have that. He was in OT before, but we like ramped up the OT. We started seeing a child psychologist who was really um, trauma informed Mm -hmm. and saw him and his needs, not as, you know, autism or something to be fixed, but just like, this is a child with a lot of medical trauma and Mm -hmm. how can we meet him or raise that? So that was a huge turning point for us. I realized I didn't know how to engage with him Mm -hmm. as the type of mother he needed. I just didn't understand how he was perceiving the world, how the world was to him. And so I think that there were maybe ways that I learned how to engage with him. I learned how to play with him in a way that I just didn't really know before. And so it was a really cool journey for me working with his psychologist and doing play therapy, him and me. And she was in the room kind of guiding and directing. That was a big turning point, like a really huge time in our lives, just kind of coming together as a family. Mm -hmm. And he was finally on the feeding tube and finally on this formula. And we reached sort of a little bit of a groove. I don't think we've ever really been in a groove, but as much as you're going to get one Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. with how quickly things change. And then I think the last big one was last year, his formula was recalled from the market. I mean, just overnight, we didn't have a nutrition source for him. Mm -hmm. So that was scary but I didn't want to project that fear onto him. So he was just, you know, kind of going around his business. I'm working with a dietitian and with the GI doctor, trying new formulas, giving him lots of Benadryl to help him tolerate Mm. the new formula. And he did tolerate it. He tolerated the switch to something else and his body started feeling better. Mm. And he started for the first time in his life. He was almost seven. He wanted to start eating food by mouth. And so a whole new wave of fear, because I was like, well, the last time you tried that, 
like things did not go well. And, but I didn't <laughs> want to like make him afraid of food and mm-hmm. he never really showed much interest. So mm-hmm. now that he was showing interest, I'm just like, okay, sure. Have the chocolate chip cookie that has eggs and flour and <laughs> chocolate in it. Like it was so absurd to me, but he also didn't know how to chew or swallow. Um, <laughs> so there, he wasn't eating a whole bunch of it. You know, he's like taking yeah. tiny nibbles, but he was feeling well enough to try. And each day he would have like a little nibble, a little bit more. We put a mirror in front of him so he could like watch what his mouth was doing. and. Now, you know, over a year later, he's still fully G-tube dependent on his formula mm-hmm. for nutrition, but he's trying new things. He's tolerating a lot of what he's trying and things are like just less scary when mm-hmm. it comes to food. So I feel like we're in this new stage. Yeah. I mean, I just think there's so many legitimate fears that you have had to navigate through his whole life. And so for you to kind of be at a place where those particular fears seem to be less threatening. It's great to see that part alleviated a little bit. Yeah. To give you some space for all the other things. All the other things. All the other things. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I remember you sharing the story about the formula being recalled. And I mean, just the idea of cutting somebody out from yeah. their food source. I mean, if you look at it for you or I, like how that would be. And it's just, it's like almost like incomprehensible. Wow. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing. I don't think it's an assumption to say we've all become new people along this journey. And yeah. so my assumption is that that's the same for you. As you look back at these seasons, these moments, and even where you are now, what do you feel like are the things that helped you the most in some of those really fragile seasons? Mm. Well, I think that I got into therapy. I started seeing a psychologist when my son was little, pretty much within a few weeks of him being born, my anxiety was like sky high Mm because I knew something was wrong. (laughs) No one was Mm -hmm. listening to me. And I just felt like, oh my gosh, I'm going to be returning to work and I'm not ready to do that. I can't, no, I can't leave him. I just knew I couldn't. And I just thought it was postpartum anxiety. I started seeing a psychologist who was like, yeah, we'll work through this. This is very normal. I'm so glad you're here. And then, you know, week by week, we're like, nope, I'm not stopping. This is, <laughs> mm-hmm. there's, there's a lot going on. I was also very lucky because my psychologist is also a special needs mom. And um, so she knew some stuff that I didn't even know yeah. she knew. I think having a place to help process anxiety, very validating person in my life who would just, you know, listen to me. And I knew she had my back. Mm-hmm. I knew she understood me. My husband also has that same place for me as well. He is my partner in this, although our experiences are really quite different. And I don't know if he really even can ever fully understand the trauma of like not being able to breastfeed my kid successfully when like my milk was making my son sick. He can hear me and be there for me, but that's something that you know, unless you've been there, it's, it's just a very unique situation, but I do have, you know, people I can rely on and people I can talk to that has helped throughout. And then I was introduced to meditation by my psychologist. She was funny. It was, it was like the months leading up to my son's uh, feeding tube surgery. 
Hmm. And she's like, so normally I give suggestions and ideas, but this is not really a suggestion. You need to do this. (laughs) She's like, like, it's actually a demand. I will make sure you do this no matter what. I love it. Yeah. I'm going to follow up on this. And so she Mm -hmm. wanted me to read a book by John Kabat-Zinn called Full Catastrophe Living. And then she said, you know, download some apps. Let's find something that's like short, like a couple minutes a day, just something to get you started that book, Full Catastrophe Living, really was very just life-changing. It helped me in being able to tolerate just being in the present moment, mm-hmm. not, not feeling I have to fix everything all the time because I'm a fixer. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm a physical therapist. Mm-hmm. I am also <laughs> a people pleaser. And you know, like I got to get to the root of the issue and fix the problem. And that's mm-hmm. not always possible mm-hmm. um, with my child more tolerance for the unknown and for the discomfort of simply being. And I remember when we were in the hospital for his uh, feeding tube surgery, and I continued my practice, it was doing five minutes a day. And Mm -hmm. that was so helpful. I was also doing yoga back then. I'm not currently doing yoga, but I think movement in general has been Mm -hmm. um, a really great outlet for me, whether it's running or swimming or yoga or weightlifting or, you know, anything just to move my body. Um, that's been great for my nervous system. And also knowing other moms in this community and connecting with other moms, like how we met at retreat and, you know, we're busy. It's hard to like have those strong connections and maintain them during the weeks. Cause we're all just like in it, mm-hmm. but just knowing that there are other women who get it, who I can connect with when it's possible. That has been huge. Yeah, I would agree that being connected, feeling like you have people to reach out to you in those moments and just knowing that somebody else out there understands. I'll add this funny little story. So one of the things that we've had to do this year is to put locks on our refrigerator Mm -hmm. and for the reason that my son is food seeking. And so he's not able to regulate. I mean, a lot of kids are not able to regulate, let's be honest, but his is at the point where it's not safe for him. Yeah, And so we have locks on our refrigerator and I kind of hate them. I mean, it's not a preference that I would have. And they also wonder what people think when they come to our house. Like we have people working at the house. I'm like, it must be like, wow, this lady is really, really strict about the diet. (laughs) (laughs) Dear, dear, dear. Because our pantry has a lock too. But I have a very close friend who also has locks on her refrigerator. And I just can think of her and be like, Jessica has got this. Like yep. she knows. And I can call her and I can tell her about how upset I was that I'm going to have to put locks on my brand new refrigerator and it's going to make it ugly. And while that's first world problem and it still makes me upset. It's frustrating. Yeah. Yes, I concur. Yeah. Wow. You shared so, so many like really insightful things and particularly that book title. I'm like, that sounds like one I want to read. Um, <laughs> you should. It's so good. I love the audio book too. Mm, um, to I've know. listened to it two times and it is oh so good. John Kabat-Zinn is amazing. Sorry, another side story. One of my professors in college who taught turf management, so like managing grass. Mm-hmm. Yes, I studied plants. His name was Dr. Green. And oh. I'm just like, I mean, come yes. on. <laughs> <That's> great. <laughs> okay. So I just wanted to mention to everybody, we'll put links to that book so you can easily find it. If you want to dive into that as like a self-guided resource, it sounds like it would be really, really valuable. I want to jump back to something that you had shared earlier. 
And that is about this responsibility piece. And you and I have talked a little bit about this together before. And, you know, you shared today about like, you really struggled in those early stages with that responsibility and understanding like what you could change and what you couldn't change and how you can impact things. And I just kind of want to set the scene a little bit for like, how do you experience that? We'll call it hyper responsibility. How do you experience that? And how does it show up in your life? Yeah, it shows up a lot. Again, I like to fix the things. There's times where I feel like, no, I'm not doing it anymore. I'm, you know, at peace with what is, I'm going to let things be. And in a lot of ways, I can't let go of responsibility because my son wouldn't be okay. And Mm -hmm. so that's where the struggle comes in. There are times where I probably don't have to feel so responsible. I used to say or feel like, oh, you know, I did that thing or I said that thing and I triggered a meltdown. I was like, I was Mm. responsible for triggering Mm -hmm. that meltdown. I love one of the things my therapist said that really stuck with me. She's like, Amy, the meltdown was going to happen. Like, oh yeah, it didn't matter that you did that thing or you moved the chair that way. Or No, it would have been something else. The meltdown was coming. And that really gave me such freedom to not feel like, I was the one like, I know I don't have to walk on eggshells in my home. I can be respectful to my son and his nervous system and try to create an environment which is as supportive of him as possible. But I myself, I'm not causing a meltdown. And I've done a lot of growth in that way. You know, early on, I felt so responsible for him not gaining weight, where really what the issue was, was his body wasn't absorbing Mm -hmm. food and nutrients. Mm -hmm. And even to this day, we still see some issues with absorption and his nutrition, but it's much better now. Where it's really challenging is when a new thing pops up or a new symptom arrives. And I feel like if I am not on top of it, nothing is going to get done. Mm-hmm. And that's actually the reality. So this past winter, we were seeing some new concerning symptoms. And I messaged his doctor right away. And she agreed, yeah, that is concerning. We'll have to keep an eye on that. But it wasn't in her specialty. This Mm -hmm. was not a GI issue. So then I thought, gosh, you know, this is getting worse. We need to see somebody about this. Well, he has rare conditions. And so we need to see somebody who understands those rare conditions so that these symptoms can be looked at in the context of Mm -hmm. his condition. And there are doctors that don't believe hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos exists. Mm. There are doctors that don't think mast cell activation syndrome exists. And so I can't go to those doctors. <laughs> that <laughs> wouldn't be as helpful. I that agree with that. That would be the place to go. So I was doing all the research of, okay, well, I'm a PT and I work with this population. Like I know the people, I'll figure it out. And I'm calling around and I'm emailing and I'm reaching out and I'm getting nothing. So. Now what? So now I reach out to his primary physician at the time who was like, great, I'll put in a referral for the specialist at UCLA. Great. Thank you so much. Does that doctor know anything about EDS and MCAS? No. Okay. So that's probably not the first place we should start, you know? And so I'm the one driving the ship. Mm-hmm. And I was told he's going to need a spinal cord MRI. Well, I don't want him to have a spinal cord MRI because I don't want him to have to go under anesthesia. Like, I don't want to put him through that. But in order to have the MRI, he has to be under. So I'm now responsible for making this happen somehow. 
even though I don't want it to happen. Mm-hmm. And if I just said, screw it, I'm not doing it, it would never have happened because no one was driving this. His doctor, the local hospital, like she put the order in so that it could be done at the hospital that he's had procedures and surgeries at in the past. Local hospital, they know him there. His medical records are there. But we didn't have an, a neurologist there. We don't have a neurosurgeon there. And no one on that staff was like going to be knowledgeable in his condition. So while I had support, I was really responsible for making this happen. And every time he had new symptoms pop up and they were intermittent, right? So they kind of go away for a couple of weeks. I'm like, oh, this phase is done. And then boom, it would happen again. I'm like, never mind. And mm-hmm. it felt like just a punch in the gut every time. And time is ticking and I have to make this happen. Then we had insurance challenges. And then when we finally got it scheduled, there was more insurance challenges. And then up to the day before the MRI, they didn't schedule the anesthesiologist. And no one would have known that, but I knew that we didn't get a pre-op phone call and that Mm, we should have gotten mm -hmm. a pre-op phone call. And I'm like, well, Mm -hmm. I know we've been here before. We've done this. We've had MRIs before. So I said, where's the pre-op phone call? They're like, no, 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 it's MRI. It's different. Don't worry. Just show up tomorrow at six in the morning. And I just called as many departments as I could get a hold of and finally figured out they never scheduled the anesthesiologist, which means we would have shown up with the next morning and not have the MRI. And so the whole thing mm-hmm. was just validating that I do have to be hyper-responsible. If I didn't call them, I mean, at least 20 times over the two months leading up to it, it wouldn't have happened. There were so many ways it was falling apart. And I think that I wanted to just let go. I wanted to just let it be, let the medical system work and not be feeling so responsible for figuring out what's going on. But that unfortunately isn't the way the system is. And when you don't have a condition that is so well known, you know, there are programs at some of the major children's hospitals for some conditions like, you know, cancer, I would never wish cancer upon my son. So I'm not like, I hope that doesn't come across that way. But you enter a hospital with a cancer diagnosis, they're making appointments for you. Like you have Mm -hmm. everything set up for you. And I can say firsthand, the experience in HEMOC is it's like first class service. It's so great compared to other departments. And you know, like, I know that you've been in this situation where you're like, there's a new symptom. It's not cancer anymore. So now you're in this world of like, you need to figure it out. Even just to know what specialists to go to and finding Mm -hmm. the specialist and who takes your insurance. There's so much there. Meanwhile, you know, okay, let me try to get him back into physical therapy. Let me try, you know, and it's on top of everything. It's really, really, really hard to not feel hyper-responsible because in reality, I am. I have to be. I want to break this down because I think you're highlighting a very real experience that I am very well connected to what you're describing. I'm experiencing it too. And what I notice is that it makes me really mad. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It makes me really, really mad. Why? Because I feel like a victim and I feel powerless because I'm trying my darnest. I feel like I'm pretty competent and it's not working. And so there's this dynamic where We know we want to persist because we want to get the help for our child, yet it's very hard when you hit so many roadblocks and barricades, et cetera. And I'll come back to this in a little bit, but I think the opportunity for us, all of us, both you and I and everybody listening, is to constantly notice the relationship we're having to what's happening and to check ourselves. If we are kind of 
falling into the role of it's happening to me. I can't, I don't have any choice versus recognizing, okay, this is what's happening. This is who I am. This is what I'm choosing to do. It doesn't necessarily change the things that you're going to have to do. Like you're still going to have to call, but it does change how we feel significantly. And so I want to jump back to the question I was going to ask you. And given this scenario, right? Like it's like this hyper responsibility, this persistent, I might even say like, what's the word over acting Mm -hmm. way of being that you've described. I mean, there's upsides, right? You get shit done. (laughs) You but do. there's some downsides. And what do you see for yourself? What are the the downsides? What does this cost to have this hyper responsibility? Well, the downside is is burnout. Absolute total utter burnout. And you know, this is an example that I really needed to be so hyper responsible in order to get things to actually happen. But the feeling of being hyper responsible over when his symptoms arise I want to fix the issue, but Mm -hmm. that can't be, I can't fix the issue. I can't, I can help him through the moment. I can comfort him. I can make sure he's okay after the fact, you know, lay down with him and repair after, you know, he's had whatever has happened. That's what I can do. I can control that. And that doesn't lead to burnout. Just being there for my child, that doesn't lead to burnout, but feeling like, what could I have done? What did I miss? Did something happen yesterday? Did I did I give him that instead? Like that is crazy making, honestly. And I know there's probably mm-hmm. a way better way of saying that, but yeah, actually, I'm going to summarize maybe in a little bit different words. But I think you've highlighted something really important, and yeah, I think burnout is kind of the obvious conclusion to this. And I think we've all been there, right? Like we've yeah. all been to this point where I can't go on. I'm so sick of this. It does wear you down. Yeah, and you were just talking about the experience of like kind of trying to fix something that ultimately you did not have the authority to fix mm-hmm. or that I would use the word agency. And so there's this dynamic in which I think this hyper responsibility tries to control that, which is not controllable. Yes. And that'll make you real crazy as you're saying, like, because you're trying to do something that is literally impossible. Like, let's just say you were trying to heal his syndrome. I don't know that you have authority over that. And as you try to do that and you're as you're attached to that and you wear yourself out doing that, like that is not a happy life. Exactly. And I think even going back to when he was a baby, mm-hmm. we didn't know. We didn't know what's going on. I was told by multiple lactation consultants, oh, it's the way you're holding him. Mm-hmm. That's why he's throwing mm-hmm. up. It's his his latch because of the way that you are positioning him. It was me, right? Mm-hmm. It's because mm-hmm. you're eating eggs. It's because you're eating soy. So I was being fed all this information Mm -hmm. that it's on me. I can change Mm -hmm. this. Mm -hmm. And over the years, when new symptoms arise, it's not because of me. It's because of his conditions. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes we get kind of wrapped up and, oh my gosh, did I do the thing? Or what did I, oh, I could have given him that medicine. But then taking a step back and checking in periodically. Because no one in the right mind would say like, your child has an issue. You're not just going to accept it and move on. Like, no, you're Mm going to try to like help your kid. (laughs) So at some point you're going to like, you know, first try some things. And then when you realize you've done what you can do, then finding peace in that place and moving forward. And then when the next episode hits, an episode can be like a new diagnosis or a change in 
symptoms because it's never the same. It's always like changing. Okay. So like when my son stopped speaking, he was not the most verbal child, but he would talk to pretty much everybody in his circle. And then the pandemic happened and then he stopped speaking to everybody except Mm -hmm. for four people. And so I thought, okay, I could help him with this. I can help him with that. We're going to try this. We're going to try that. And it wasn't working. Mm -hmm. Nothing was helping him feel comfortable speaking. And so then once we realized we did all the things and I have the speech therapist and I have the OT and the psychologist, okay, this is where he's at right now. So Mm -hmm. what does he need? Oh, he needs assistive device to help him with communication in school. Okay. That's what we can do next. Mm-hmm. So not like forcing him to talk because there's no forcing him to talk. Mm-hmm. It's not my fault that he's not talking. It's just, it is. This is what it is right now. And finding peace in what is, knowing that you tick the boxes that you did what you can do, but still respecting who your child is and where they're at. It's a lot easier to do when it's like something that's not medically terrifying. Agreed. Yeah. yeah. But I think that finding those moments, like checking in with yourself, okay. Can I let go now? Can I just be here now and gather the resources of what we need to be in this moment now instead of like seeking and searching and trying to fix? And there's no going back. There's just moving forward. Mm -hmm. Well, you've done a great job of really describing the experience of acceptance. When we accept, it's almost like it's the door, it's the gateway into being able to come from the place that you were just describing of being able to say, okay, He's not speaking. What does he need? He needs a Mm -hmm. device. You've danced in like, okay, like I can do this. I can do this. I'm going to try this. Like I see things I can do. Yet it was inside of the acceptance, I think, that allowed you to continue to persist, but not in a way that was like, I have to. And if I don't, then it was like, okay, this is how I want to help my son. So you said a little bit ago, you get to this point where you can recognize that you've done what you needed to do. And then you can look around and be like, okay, now I can just rest in the peace and allow what is. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit about your experience of how you distinguish the difference between what you have done, as in like your work is done versus you continuing to push and to strive. Oh, that is such a good question. So I think ultimately in my journey, I have reached a level of acceptance of his condition. This is not something that's going away. These are chronic. Like my son is my son. He is not going to like one day magically not have these conditions. They're part of him. And so that acceptance does help in a lot of ways, just because, you know, when you have a baby and you don't know that these are chronic conditions, Mm -hmm. then there's a lot more room for feeling like you can fix the thing. Mm-hmm. Um, Good point. Yeah. And maybe in some cases there are things that can be fixed or addressed and you know treated. Mm-hmm. And so in our day-to-day life, especially when something new pops up, I think that I have truths to hold on to. Mm. So the truths I hold on to and have gotten easier to return to to like to rely on these truths as I've been in this journey longer, but we have always found a solution. Mm -hmm. We've always done what is needed to be done. And we've always 
you know, gotten to that next stage, whatever that next stage may be, acceptance of what is, ticking mm-hmm. the boxes and knowing we tried our best. I saw him having a feeding tube when he was two years old as my biggest failure. And his GI doctor said, oh, no, no, you will see. You will love the feeding tube and you'll be so grateful for it. Give it some time. And about four or five months after he got it, I was like, oh, it was the greatest gift he ever had. Mm-hmm. I saw it as a huge failure on my part. I couldn't mm-hmm. feed my child. That experience, getting through that experience, and anytime I see his feeding tube, it's like a reminder to me. Mm-hmm. I might think I'm failing, but really this is just his journey. This is mm-hmm. what he needs. And thank God that we live in a time that we have modern medicine and that we can keep a child like my son alive with a feeding tube and with these special formulas. So, you know, when we hit these roadblocks and something new occurs, when we're in a scary medical situation, I hold on to the truth that we have done these hard things together as a family and we've made it through whatever through means. Things that I have perceived as failures have not in fact been failures. So that's another truth that I can hold on to. And third is, I am a terrible predictor of the future. I suck <laughs> at predicting the future. And so I I know I'm really bad at predicting it. And so whenever my brain goes into the what ifs, I'm, I, I could just rest in the fact that I'm probably wrong. Like that worst case scenario, that's not, it's never happened. I guess at the time the G-tube was my worst case scenario. That mm-hmm. did happen, but it really wasn't a worst case scenario. Mm-hmm. Worst case scenario is my son not being fed. Mm-hmm. that's a worst case scenario. So I think the perspective of this is part of his journey, just kind of zooming out a little bit. And, you know, if I had not had that MRI, if we showed up at that, that morning that it was scheduled, I probably would have raged like I had never raged before, mm-hmm. but we would have gone home. I would have probably gone on a long run and we would have tried again at some point mm-hmm. after I regrouped mm-hmm. and like, you know, got rid of the anger. It would get that. Yeah. It wouldn't be pretty or fun for anybody, but it would have happened. So if I couldn't find a doctor, a specialist, we're heading to the East Coast in a couple months to see the specialist because it turns out they're all on the East Coast. So <laughs> that's where we're headed. If I hadn't found that person, like we would have consulted with somebody here. It would happen eventually. What's meant to happen is going to happen. I'm personally not one who's like throwing my destiny or like, into fate necessarily. Mm -hmm. That's not really what I'm getting at, but I just, I have the belief that we will get it done, whatever it is on my son's timeline, whenever his body allows or whatever, you know, it's, it doesn't have to be. Well, I think what you're you're doing is you're acknowledging that you don't have control over everything. everything. So what's going to happen is going to happen. And as coaches love the word and, (laughs) and that doesn't mean you just sit and watch, right? Like you do all the right. things, you influence it. You, of course you have impact. And in some cases, the result's still going to be the same as it would have been if you didn't, because we don't know what's going to happen. Right. I want to jump back as we kind of come in for a landing, but you said something that I want to make sure the listeners really catch on to, because it is, if I could give any gift to a mom like us, it would be this. And it's those truths that you described. It's having those truths because we try to find our peace in 
knowing the thing's going to be okay in knowing if you're going to get the anesthesiologist to show up or whatever the thing is, right? Yeah. And we don't, right? And so it's like this anxiety-ridden circle, swirl, storm persists because we're trying to control so much that's not controllable. And giving ourselves these truths for you, like saying, what I know, I don't have any doubts of, is that I'll show up and I won't stop until we get what we need. You know that, Mm -hmm. right? Right doesn't mean it's going to be easy, but you know that. And that gives you the ability to land on solid ground. Mm-hmm. Just kind of considering that like the storm of anxiety is like that I'm picturing like a tornado. And yep. if we don't teach ourselves, I'll say it differently, if we don't practice finding the places that we can land on solid ground, like you've described them as your truths, then it's like we're going to get swept up more easily. And it doesn't mean that we sometimes don't get looped up in that little tornado, right? Like yeah. we do. And we find our, our way back to the ground again. So yeah, you guys could even go back and listen to her describing like this piece of being able to find those truths for herself. Okay. This conversation has been so rich and I so appreciate it. I want to make sure that we respect all of our listeners' time. <laughs> but... I want to hand it over to you. If there's anything that we didn't get to talk about and or things that are just still on your mind that you want to share from your story or just, you know, anything that you would want to share with the listeners, what would you say? Yeah. You know, I think that for me, it was therapy, Mm -hmm. therapy, which led to meditation. And for some people, it's religion and it's their church or their synagogue. For some, it's family. And I think just finding an outlet and a place to process everything that's going on is so important. We do a lot on our own. It's like, I know in this episode, we're talking about not being so hyper-responsible, but mm-hmm. we're still really responsible. And I think being responsible of our children, even if you don't have a child with a disability, it's a lot. So when you add on disabilities, when you add on all these complications, these healthcare systems that are not working for you in a lot of different ways, it is just so important to be able to own. It is hard. It is okay that it is hard. It's okay that I could sit here and chat about how I'm not feeling hyper-responsible, but like I will again, probably like tomorrow, you know, and then I'll <laughs> remind myself that. And it's, I just think it's so important to have some sort of outlet and know that it's a cycle. We're working on it. We're working on ourselves as we're working on our, you know, our relationship with our children and helping them grow. And I just think that we're all doing so much for our children and having an outlet for ourselves is so much for ourselves too. Yeah. I can't agree more. And you sounds like you have a really incredible therapist and I'm so happy for you. Um, <laughs> Thank you. And I'm going to just be so audacious to pitch a little bit about the Pathway to Peace program that, and, you know, this is not necessarily mm-hmm. your thing, but between September and October, we're starting a new cohort for the fall. And you've described the idea of having a place where you can sort this stuff out, where you can acknowledge that it's hard, where you can be supported by community, but also where you can kind of have some push up against some of those things that are happening for you in a way that has you restory them, have it work a little bit better for you. Look at the ways that it's not serving you, this hyper-responsibility, for instance, and work with it. 
you know, I mentioned the word earlier practice. So I want to pitch that because if you hear Amy and you're like, wow, like, (laughs) sounds like she's got some stuff figured out. I agree. And also we know it's not perfect. I would invite you to reach out to me to consider the pathway to peace program because that's really what you've described. And yes, you're right. Support can happen a lot of different ways. So it's not the only way, but in my opinion, it's actually a really great way. I couldn't agree more. And I'm so glad that like I said that because when you started speaking about it, I'm like, yes, of course. Like that is such a great resource that you provide. I think anybody who does it is so lucky to have you as their coach and to have that community. Hmm. And I'm not just saying that. I really, I truly truly (laughs) believe that. So Uh, Well, thank you. That makes me feel really good. And again, thank you so much for sharing your authentic self with us today. Thank you for having me. We'll see you in the next episode. One more thing before we officially, officially wrap up this show. Sometimes when I'm listening to podcasts, I have the experience of wanting more. I'm listening at the very end thinking, I sure wish that episode didn't end. I invite you, if you feel in any way the same way, I invite you to the Special Needs Mom podcast community, which is a free group that I host on Facebook, where we as a community of fellow moms who listen to this podcast and are experiencing life in similar shoes, get to talk to one another, get to share stories, get to actually interact. I hope you'll consider joining. See you over there.